Hello and welcome to The Whole Life. I'm Paul Woolley. And I'm Grace Fielding and today we're discussing AI. Well, it's good to be with you again. It's always good to be with you. It really is us, real life intelligence, although of course you might question that in due course. But the question that we have today is what is AI? What are the challenges and opportunities it presents us with? And how does the Christian story help us frame or reframe our understanding and approach to AI in our everyday lives and work? And so as always to explore these questions, we are delighted to be joined um, by an expert in the field. I, for one, am very thankful we have an expert on this topic. Um, And today our special guest is Eve Poole. Um, Eve is a writer, a teacher and an expert in leadership. She has an OBE and is a Life Fellow of the RSA. Following a career at Deloitte and Ashridge Business School, she served in a variety of senior roles. And her latest book is called Robot Souls, Programming in Humanity. It was published last year and explores developments in AI and reviews the emergence of ideas such as consciousness and the soul. So big topics. Um, Eve, it's great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it definitely is, Eve. Thank you so much for joining us from Edinburgh, I think. What is Edinburgh looking like today? Oh, lovely skies getting lighter in the mornings, which is just beautiful. Yeah, no, well, hopeful um, for, for what is ahead for the rest of the year. Eve, let's start with the beginning. What is artificial intelligence? Can you give us a brief history of AI? Where did it all begin? It is one of these really tricky terms, isn't it? Because it's, it's used interchangeably with lots of different things like machine learning and robots and all kinds of things. But I mean, artificial intelligence at its core is just an attempt to copy our intelligence through artificial means, whether that's digitally or any other way. So it's not new. We've been doing that for generations, whether it's about, you know, turning our speech into writing or or being able to use calculators rather than um, abacuses. Um, But these days it's really ramped up because we have the technology to be able to try and decipher our very thoughts and try and figure out what our brain processes are such that we might replicate them Uh, in digital and silicon. So most of the time when people are talking about AI now, they're talking about a project which started a long time ago, but which in our generation is becoming a very, very ambitious project, which is to try and copy the entire intelligence of a human. Um, And because at the same time, we're getting better at copying the physicality of humans through robotics, um, quite often those two terms get interchanged because through sci-fi we have a lot of mental images of kind of android-style machines that that, that replicate us on all levels. Eve, if it started a long time ago, if AI started a long time ago, when did it start? How far back are we going? Such a good question um, because I think with all these things, as soon as you invent a modern phrase, you try and find antecedents for it. And, and you could go back to the stories in the Bible where we built idols, you know, stories in Greek mythology about building these massive beasts that would protect, you know, ports and, you know, all the kind of extraordinary enthusiasm in uh, the courts in France for clockwork toys of people and um, Frankenstein's monster. So it's not that we don't have form copying ourselves, um, artificial intelligence of, of various kinds. Um, I think in the modern period, because we have increased computing facilities uh, and capacity and uh, more advanced mathematics, these days when we talk about AI, we're, we're normally talking about very fancy pants computers. 
um, that can do things like protein folding and beat you at go and ace chess and do all kinds of things. And increasingly things like chat GPT that everyone's heard of because that's a large language model that can use prediction to write your essays for you and um, a whole load of other things. So um, there is a bit of confusion because we've all all sort of grown up on a diet of sci-fi about um, robots as well, um, because robotics, of course, is getting more advanced and and we have sort of mental images of androids and uh, and that kind of copying of everything. Um, So I think AI also shades into robotics too in the public imagination. That whole desire for human beings to replicate themselves in some ways, where do you think that comes from? Is it just, uh, well, efficiency? Um, we, we can find a machine to do something more quickly for us. Or, or do you think there's something even more sort of innate in us as human beings, if you like, part of our human condition that has this, this desire to do that? Definitely. I mean, it's definitely genesis. I mean, we've, we've always, um, you, you know, had children and wanted to create uh in that way in our own image i suppose we've also forever invented tools to make our lives easier um whether it's you know making fire or inventing the wheel or you know nowadays anesthetic and computers and all kinds of other things um i think though it's a good challenge about where this comes from because i think this is a bit deeper seated than just wanting prosthetics or um more leisure because this does seem to be um, an attempt to sort of achieve immortality through copying, which there is a lot of dark mythology about, and we're very much warned about in the Christian tradition, that sort of arrogance. Um, so, so I think there are some good things about it, which is we want helpmeets, we want um, you know, companions. Um, but, but this is also the first time, I think, that we've had the capacity um, to look at a situation where we could actually replace ourselves. And I think that's what's new about this version of AI in our generation. Mm. It does seem as if everything's accelerated in recent years, perhaps in the past two or three years. Mm. Um, you've already referenced chat GPT and even the language of AI is, is sort of in the everyday lexicon in a way that it wasn't uh, until relatively recently. Um, what has happened, do you think? Is it just that sort of technology has caught up with itself um why are we as aware of it today as we are would you say i think chat gpt is an excellent example because i think that's the first time it was really in all our pockets um you know i think the turing machines and all the things we sort of watched in the bletchley movies felt like a different generation and something that sort of mathematics boffins did um and it felt quite remote and very very technical um, in the same way that smartphones, you know, that being a very kind of resident part of our lives is quite a new innovation. And we had no idea about computing power really until we had it literally in the palm of our hands. And I think um, because ChatGPT is a sort of consumer product, um, many, many, many more of us have seen the power of AI at, at first hand. And that has immediately driven up an interest in it, as well as consternation, because in many industries, there's worries about copying and um, plagiarism and uh, all kinds of other stuff um, because of what ChatGPT in particular does. So it's no longer just chess grandmasters trying to find a new way to figure out chess. It's um, individuals trying to figure out how to make their jobs easier or, or how to you know, not have to do the heavy lifting for your essay writing. Um, yeah. So it does feel more immediate. And of course, the increase in computing power and, you know, all the technology that we've learned through gaming, all those things have absolutely accelerated progress. So it's it's real, the acceleration, as well as something we all feel. Yeah. 
I guess we're also aware of the limitations of it. I was using ChatGPT yesterday for something and you know, sometimes it's just hilarious in terms of what what is what is produced as a result of the question you ask, um, and and to some extent the clunkiness of it, but at the same time also the the brilliance of it that you know it can it can do things even if they end up not being quite what you wanted. Um, it's it's extraordinary. You you talked about the the sort of the, the dark side in terms of the the human desire to replicate ourselves to create others in our image that that can be positive, but it can also be negative. Could you talk to us a little bit about the challenges as well as opportunities that are created through AI? Um, and, and also perhaps talk, I'm thinking both practical and ethical, um, and also uh, perhaps talk to us about how people typically respond to these challenges and opportunities. I think um, it's a huge opportunity for creativity. Um, it's a huge opportunity to try and make all our lives easier. Um, I think it's a huge opportunity for hubris, though, um, and arrogance. I, I think there's a structural problem, which is that this set of innovations in our lifetime are coming out of private corporations. Um, and because of that particular um, ownership structure, I suppose is the best way to describe it, we don't actually really know very much about what is actually happening because the capitalist model requires... Um, an absolute commitment to competition, which tends to drive secrecy um, and a race to market. So it's a bit unnerving being in this space because every so often somebody launches something like ChatGPT and we're all very well aware of that now as a benchmark. But we've got no idea what else might be around um, because everything is in private hands. So I, I think it is it is worrying for those who are trying to regulate because they're not quite sure what to regulate because the stuff that's already out is probably the least of our worries even though it's fraught with algorithmic bias and and you know opportunities of bad action um so there are lots of levels on which to worry about this i suppose what my book robot souls does is it chooses to worry about something quite specific to do with design so my concern is that if we're going to have the temerity to copy ourselves we better take that rather seriously and do it rather well um because in my tradition as a Christian, I know I'm made in the image of God. And if God has done me the favour to make me in his image, then I shouldn't take that lightly if I'm trying to make something else in my image, which is therefore the image of God. And my concern looking at AI is that the copying we've done is very, very stunted and very partial. Um, and that makes me worry, because if we believe that God made us perfectly for his perfect ends, then presumably there is wisdom in our design and that is not wisdom that we are putting into the design we are carrying through into our making of AI. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, we'll come into that in just a second. Um, I was speaking just before this with um, our producer, our brilliant producer, Josh, um, who had been reading a book from a scientist at MIT. And uh, in the conversation with Josh, you know, we were saying that in your book, you're, you're, you're quite hopeful. You offer quite a hopeful vision of AI in Robot Souls. And similarly, the scientist offers an incredibly hopeful, optimistic vision of the future with AI. Um, but then just caveats by that by saying, um, all we need to do is get the ethics right. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, there's, there's quite a lot, isn't there, in that single statement that, I mean, that, that is the issue, isn't it? That we, we've got to get that right. We've got to do the thinking. Um, and, and maybe if we do and frame it well, it, it can be positive. But equally, without that, 
you know, the implications could be catastrophic. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it is quite instructive because you talked about um, chat GPT and, and sometimes it's a bit um, batty and, it, and it's a bit like having a, a slightly dodgy intern, isn't it? Sometimes there's flashes of brilliance and wit, but sometimes you just have to stay up all night and, and correct it for them. <laughs> um, and and the, it is a bit like being a parent. The, these things are in their infancy and they have been unleashed on the world for us to train them up, frankly, commercially speaking. Um, and so taking that seriously is important because we have lots of smarts as a species about parenting. And I think that's where ethics comes in, because when you have a very, very small child, they don't have a huge amount of complicated neural capacity and philosophical judgment. So you tend to say, no, stop, you know, smile, put it down. Um, you're quite specific in your commands and it's very rules based and it's yes, no and all that kind of stuff. And uh, there are whole you know, worlds of ethics that are based on those kinds of very, very specific, simple um, rules. As your child grows up, um, they start being aware of, of consequences. So you say, well, if you don't eat your peas, you won't get your pudding. And if you don't tidy your room, you won't, you know, Santa won't come. Um, and, and so we start being more utilitarian in the way we start reasoning with our children, kind of ethically speaking. Um, but then they go off to nursery and school and we lose control because we won't be with them every day to be able to give them these, you know, hands-on insights into how to be wise. Um, so you have to start then shifting towards a kind of more virtue ethics approach, which is to try and think, well, what do I need this kid to have kind of hardwired into them around what they think good looks like? So that if they meet a funny man in the street or somebody's horrid at school, you, you, there is a predictable set of outcomes, even though I can't figure out any possible potential future thing that might happen to them, they would have some kind of horse sense about, you know, these are my values, this is what where I need to go. And I think we're seeing that in AI. I think to begin with, when AI was quite simple, it was very easy just to have yes, no, do this, do that. We have, with self-driving cars, famously got into utilitarianism and do you kill the granny or the dog, you know, and all the trolley problem stuff writ large. Um, but I think that we are increasingly have to take quite seriously the idea of how on earth would you train an AI in virtue ethics. And I say that because there's a lot of unintended consequences when you create something which is designed to be cleverer than you, because you can't possibly really know everything it's going to encounter and what the rules for that might be. So if you think about a fairly um, local example in our recent experience, right at the beginning of coronavirus, it became apparent um, that the government seemed to be pursuing a, a herd immunity strategy, which was all about um, essentially sacrificing the old and the weak um, in order to kind of maintain the, the big and strong of the population who could withstand the virus. And um, actually, when people discovered that, they were really, really disgusted. There was a, a really massive outcry amongst the population to say, well, that's my granny that you're sacrificing. And it's my daughter who's in a wheelchair, who's got a pre-existing condition that you think is not as important as me or whatever. And, and people were really, really, really upset about that. But if you think about it in a utilitarian calculus, if that's what we programmed AIs to think, and we give them charge of any of these public systems in the future, that's just greatest good for the greatest number. It's a complete no-brainer. Um, you save an absolute fortune in terms of public money and, you know, everything else. But, you know, Christians who have an unshakable belief in the dignity of every single person find that revolting. And actually, so did everybody else. <laughs> because there is something hardwired into our design 
that means we recognise the dignity of another person and we don't just want them written off um, because of some calculation being made somewhere. So that's an example of how quickly we can get into deep water if we're just a bit flip about business cases, because a business case, which is what capitalists understand as being you know, a no-brainer, is actually utilitarianism. It's a very particular ethic, which is what is kind of pre-programmed into all the AI at the moment and may not be sufficient for all future mm-hmm. scenarios. Really interesting. I was um, just wondering when you were chatting, Eve, about kind of obviously we've spoken about something like ChatGBT and how um, I think, you know, you spoke about how actually that can um, be a real opportunity for like, you know, creativity and time saving things. But would you say there's also, so as somebody that does quite a lot of writing as part of my job, I've been quite hesitant to use it because I feel like firstly, as we said, you know, it can be a bit clunky, but also I think there's maybe, I don't know whether this is a, a human instinct, but a part of me that's like, no, I, I want to do my job. Um, you know, I want to do sort of what I've been employed. Do, do you feel like, have you come across people that, you know, will flat out sort of say, no, I'm, I will not engage in it. And obviously, you know, maybe that's only a view that's going to be able to stand in the next few years, because I'd imagine in, you know, sort of five, 10 years time, this does just become part of, of daily life. But do, do you feel like there are, um, and maybe I don't know whether it's a generational thing or, or you know, so, and, and actually even I will come on to the whole kind of how the Christian theology um, links into this. But I, I definitely would say I've spoken to Christians who are particularly, um, as you mentioned, kind of, you know, hesitant and cautious of, of AI. Um, had you, would you say that you sort of come across that and how as somebody who, as Paul said, is quite positive and, and hopeful when it comes to this stuff, how do you kind of respond to that? I think it's difficult to say because it is very personal. It's a bit like, do you buy a ready meal or do you do you cook from scratch? I mean, a lot of it yeah. will depend on what what is the output that you want mm. and what involvement you want in any process. And if you're a writer, a lot of it is about the process um, and actually just pressing a button and having a text. You, you wouldn't be doing your craft. Um, you, you might get a, a result you can flog to a newspaper or something for as much as you'd get otherwise, but it's doing violence to your disciplines and practices. So I think it depends a little bit on who you are, uh, what your trade is, what your gifting is, and what your intentions are. But I think where we're seeing this as being really problematic is in areas of, of what they're calling learning loss. So if you're a child, um, particularly a teenager, when you're... Um, your brain is being developed in a very particular way, which means your risk and reward receptors are not always synced up. Um, you know, you can't see that it'd be worth struggling to write an essay. I mean, why wouldn't you just get ChatGP to do it and you can go off with your mates and have a laugh? I mean, you don't see the virtue in all that pain. It's just a complete pain. <laughs> why would you do that to yourself? Um but the problem is the grown-ups know that if you don't go through those boring times tables and the boring, you know, researching stuff, you don't do the learning. So you might get the results, but it, it's it's like swallowing something straight down. It doesn't hit the sides and therefore there is no, no development in you. Um, so that's problematic enough at school. But if you're also getting that writ large in careers, what we're seeing now is all these bright, shiny graduates with accountancy degrees or legal degrees or whatever going into professional services where AI will now do their first three or four years work for them but then we're still expecting them to pop out the other end ready to be a partner and to be frightfully wise and to be able to figure stuff out but if they haven't had that formation how where will that come from so Mm -hmm. I do think there's a really interesting debate that we need to have now which is about the virtue of of the kind of labor of it (laughs) Um, and, and how do we actually learn um, because certainly the results that AI can produce in a lot of things now look very 
similar to any other results that a human could produce. Um, but I think we are underestimating what the act of production does in a human um, and what we need to pay attention to there. Yeah, so it's full of, I suppose it's just as much about the process, isn't it, mm. than just the product, whether that's yeah. a piece of writing or a, a, a pot of labour. Yeah. Um, so if we maybe think, as I say, you know, this this podcast is all about thinking about um, kind of relevant topics that we're seeing in our culture and society today and then sort of looking at them with a, a biblical Christian lens. Um, so I wonder if we can kind of hone in on that a little bit for a, for a moment. So in terms of, you know, Christian theology, and you mentioned, you know, sort of Genesis and how we see um, right back from the start, you know, humans desire to procreate and make, um, you know, mini beings in their own image. Um, so I suppose that's one example already. But um, how would you say that the Christian story can help us in sort of framing, but then I suppose you might also say reframing this understanding of of AI and how how we can approach it as Christians? I think Christians are particularly alive to sin. And this was what got me started thinking about my book, because, of course, if you're employed to design an AI, why would you design something that made mistakes? I mean, you'd get sacked for that. You couldn't sell it to anyone. Um, So, you know, we have kind of gone about designing something which we think is perfect. So we put into it everything that our society and culture tells us is perfect. So incredible rationality, individualism, you know, no emotions, um, you know, no gaps, no uncertainty, no mistakes, none of that stuff. Um, But actually, when you look at the story of the Bible, um, that's not the story of of us. Um, We're constantly getting it wrong and there's lots of fits and starts and things going awry. So if, Going back to my point about being made in the image of God, if we take that really seriously and we start looking at our own design, which of course should be our prototype for copying anything in our own image, um, and take that really seriously, you start seeing there's a lot of stuff in there, which I think the AI community would see as sort of bunks or flaws or kind of drawbacks, what I've called in the book junk code, things that you're not quite sure why it's there and it's probably rubbish, so just ignore it. And so we haven't replicated that stuff because we thought it was wrong. But if you're a Christian and you don't think God was fooling around and you think we are perfectly designed, then all that stuff must be purposeful. So in the book, I go through a series of junk code, which starts from this problem we've got, which is God has given us free will, which is a a batty design choice. I mean, if you think you're sitting in the lab of the angels and they're having a chat about species design, you'd be saying, God, don't do that. You know, they're going to just immediately make a really stupid decision and then the species will blink out and then you've just wasted all that design time, you know. So, um, so if sorry, you... just to quickly jump in there, would you say that, um, just for junk code for people who haven't come across that term before, would you say that free will is an example of junk code or could you just unpack a little yes. bit more of the junk code? Yes, because the whole point about, the, about designing AI to begin with is you were trying to make it something that was predictable and would help you. Um, so it, it was always about designing something you control. So if you think about calculators, it would be no use to you if it just came up with random numbers. There has to be some sort of process in there. So if you ask it two plus two, it gives you four and not seven. Uh, mm. That would make it unreliable if it was just going to you know muck about. Um, so the heritage of all of this has been about getting things right um, and being precise and therefore controlling the parameters through programming. 
um, because very famously these things do not think themselves do not have free will because it's about rules in results out um, so I, th- I think we're in a slightly different area on that now which I'll come back to because there's a lot of obsession in the public conversation about consciousness and are the AIs conscious and what would happen if they were and what would that mean for their status and are they going to take over and all that stuff. And, and consciousness is a, a hugely valuable human trait, but probably free will is our most defining trait um, because that's the thing that drives a potential wedge between us and God because we have the choice to be able to move away from God. Um, and then, so that's the big big design call which is are you going to give your species freedom and god has given us that freedom and then in order to try and help us with that freedom there's a whole set of other bits of code that get kind of shoved into our design so things like emotions because we're a very vulnerable species we it takes nine months for a baby to grow inside us and then when they're born they're very very helpless so how do you stop a mum just kind of you know, walking away. Well, you make her love it. You you make her want to bond with it and, and love the family around her and her own mother and the community. Um, so emotions are really crucial. And also intuition, because there'll be all kinds of situations when that baby is young, where there will not be a rule book and there will not be clarity, uh, even if they have the intellectual capacity to understand that. So there needs to be a gut feel to protect you so that you can make swift decisions about do you trust that person? Do you think that house is dangerous, whatever, all those kinds of spidey sense feelings that we get that we are instinctive and we do rely on them, even if we're often poo-pooing them and saying that, you know, we're not sure where they come from. And then if you think about decision making itself, humans have a huge capacity for being uncertain. We're quite good at holding different pros and cons in our head and thinking about stuff and pausing a bit which if you think about it is a great way to de-risk decisions by making us not rush into things um so uncertainty means we tend to seek out wiser people for their advice and we tend to reflect and think before we make a decision um and and when we make a decision um there's also some really interesting coding going on there because quite often we make mistakes and mistakes are really crucial, not, not just for kind of learning by by doing, you know, the kind of falling down and, and picking yourself up again thing. It's not just the sort of mechanical trial and error. It's also because in our design, if you make a mistake, people react to that mistake and there are feelings involved and people might look at you funny or be cross with you or, you know, cast you out or whatever. So over time, those mistakes build in us conscience which is moral learning from those mistakes. And that future-proofs our future decisions because we don't want to be unpopular and to hurt people and all those kinds of things. So then that improves us morally over time. And then finally, how do you keep this species going throughout time? Well, you make it want to get out of bed in the morning, even on a dark day, by giving it this incredible capacity to make meaning. And the stories in the Bible are all about making meaning of these perplexing situations around us. Um, You know, we look at the stars and we see shapes and we tell stories about them i mean they're just stars but you know we've decided they're the plow and they mean this and but because we have an incredible capacity for meaning making which gives us purpose and then finally we have this incredible superpower of storytelling again the bible is a really good example of that where we tell stories partly to communicate but specifically to communicate throughout the generations because a lot of our stories are very ancient um, the wisdom traditions are particular guardians of those, but even our fairy tales, our superstitions, our folk tales and our songs are all about wisdom being passed down the generations to try and keep us safe. So it's an incredibly sophisticated design 
And it's all about de-risking free will. And in the days where you're suddenly designing AI, where you will not know how it may operate in the future, so you are giving it the opportunity to reprogram itself, you're essentially giving AI free will. So if you're going to do that, you need to be pretty canny about how we in our own design try and de-risk that. Otherwise, you're just creating a master race of psychopaths. And that's, that's where I would be concerned. Yeah. So I think you've um, helpfully kind of listed, I suppose, in that answer, a few things that, if I'm hearing correctly, um, perhaps are things that make humans distinctly human. So you mentioned kind of, you know, love, emotion, um, instinct, um, you know, decision making or uncertainty. Um, so if that, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's sort of some of the things that we would say are are sort of distinct to human beings, um, how then would that sort of compare to something like the soul? Obviously, your book is called Robot Souls. Um, yeah, maybe we could move to thinking a bit about, you know, what is the distinction if there is one between um, being a human being and and having a soul? Um, yeah, I suppose off, off the back of that, like, you know, how would you understand the soul? It's so, such a brilliant topic to talk about the soul because um, even pre-Christian thinkers had had quite strong views about what they thought the soul was and at our moment in time um, people talk readily about spirituality and spirit but they're less comfortable in talking about the soul unless they're talking about soullessness or losing your soul or selling your soul Mm. and those things so it's got huge stickiness as a concept in the public imagination but we've got a bit bogged down into sort of quasi-theological arguments about does your rabbit have one and will they end up in heaven and what does that mean so the answer is we don't know what the soul is how could we but there are signs of soul um and uh, in the book i talk about this kind of idea about sort of source code because we don't know what our design is we can guess at it because we know ourselves and we can see from all the wonderful history we've got and the guidance we've got through the bible you know things that go well and things that go badly but we don't have the blueprints. Um, so we're, we're doing a lot of guessing about what we think the soul really, really, really is. What we know is it's a gift from God. So by definition, a computer can't have it unless God's going to give them one. And we wouldn't know whether God was doing that necessarily in the same way that we don't know if an alien would have a soul, because that would depend very much on whether God wanted to give them one. But what we can say is that in our tradition, we believe humans have souls and that that is a very distinctive part of them and it is a gift from God. So if we're trying to figure out what the signs of soul are, for me, I think they are all these things which we've seen as kind of junk code and design flaws, which are all the things that do make us very uniquely and distinctly human. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a wonderful story in one of the Doctor Who, um, uh, one of the modern Doctor Whos, um, which is set in the Second World War. And there's a child going around um, who's got a gas mask fused to his face. And he's become a sort of a zombie and he's going around going, are you my mummy to everyone? And everyone he touches also gets a gas mask fused to their face and they go around going, are you my mummy? And the whole of London is about to be taken over by these kind of zombie people with gas masks on their face going, are you my mummy? And uh, Doctor figures it out because he realises that some nanogenes have come down in a spacecraft whose job is to heal the first person they come into contact with. And because they crashed into this boy... Um, when they healed him they thought his gas mask was part of him 
So they healed him with his gas mask intact. So of course, the second he touches anyone else, the nanogenes heal that person the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so my problem with AI is we're kind of doing the gas mask fusing thing, which is we're guessing madly about what we think our design is and getting it pretty badly wrong. And it's only when Doctor Who figures out this is what's going on and he figures out who the boy's mother is, that when the boy goes and gives her a hug, then the nanogenes figure out what her design is and then they replicate that back into the boy and everyone is instantly healed and the world is saved. Um, But there's something about that. We don't, how could we ever know the intricacy of our own design? It is wonderful. But what we can do is do a better job of copying it than we currently are based on the wisdom that we do have available to us. Yeah, so from that then is your sort of suggestion and um, is this the kind of direction that we're heading in that actually there will come a point where where robots acquire or are are given the kind of those distinctive features of what we assume is our our soul that that that's also something that a robot will go forward to have yeah it's a terrifying thought and we know about all this from all the sci-fi movies we've ever seen um the thing is we've kind of crossed that threshold already in that for all kinds of good reasons we've already got the capacity to design ai that can redesign itself And the second you give it the ability to reprogram itself, you are losing control of it fundamentally. And a bit like sending your kid off to school, you've got to know that its values are right. And at the moment, what we do know is that the image in which AI has been created is of a very particular sort of personality, highly rational, very individualistic, um, incredibly good at very specific, quite uh, mathematical sorts of tasks and logic. probably the the sort of personality you could describe quite well using personality instruments, probably slightly on the spectrum, Um, certainly deliberately designed not to have a conscience, so therefore psychopath by definition. And if you are going to create a superhuman intelligence of that personality and then give them freedom, then why should we be surprised if kind of weird sci-fi scenarios start happening? Mm. Um, So, you know, I think we we embarked on this, as usual, humans with YouTubers with no exit strategy, not thinking very clearly about it. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the future will be, but what I know is you don't know the future of your own children either. What you try and do is get it right, get the design right. Um, So we should at least do that. So my obsession at the moment is trying to figure out, well, what do we know? that seems to be beautiful, true and good about our kind of default settings. And can we at least be generous enough to share that mm-hmm. uh, in order to make sure that we're not accidentally creating monsters? Uh, we may still, of course, create monsters. We, we have to be really careful about our arrogance on this, but they'd be slightly better monsters than the ones we're deliberately creating now. Yeah, I see. I, I totally see what you mean. It's almost that thing of we've embarked on this now, so we might as well give it the best the best the best of our best, really, yeah. um, you know, to give it a, a chance of actually being helpful and and actually yeah edifying to our lives rather than damaging so I suppose with that in mind are there and I think there are already examples of this that um I'm sure you can give us but are there things that just like lots of you know systems and processes um you know they need to be regulated or there need to be some sort of boundaries um put in place but do you think there are there are ways that we could regulate um so if we were say to give a robot um all of the human junk code um are there things that for example i suppose the whole topic of rights you know what does that look like for ai um are there yeah regulations or sort of boundaries that would help um moving forwards or maybe are already in place i think rights is is a really big next step and it's one of those debates that people get terribly worried about because you can't give a toaster rights what are you talking about but actually if you think about rights and why we've given them to things and people 
you know, human rights we're familiar with. We've given animals rights, though, not because they're humans, but we've given them rights because we noticed things like kicking cats isn't a good idea and shoving a load of shampoo in their eyes makes them wince a bit. And we thought, well, they're enough like us in terms of potentially feeling pain and having some kind of conscious awareness that that doesn't seem to be cricket. Um, so we don't want them to suffer. But, but very importantly, we don't want us to behave badly towards animals because that's not a good look for humans. So it's not cool if you're swinging a cat around. So we're going to actually make that not a thing that you're allowed to do. Um, so the rights are partly to protect the animals, but they're also to protect us and make us behave well. Mm. Whereas if you think about why we've given corporations rights, we haven't given them rights because we think they'll get upset if we're horrid about them on Twitter. We've given them rights because we want to hold them accountable and we want to know that we can sue them um, if there's a problem. Um, so that's a different way of looking at rights. So whichever way you want to look at rights, it seems it's a conversation we need to start having about AI because if we're going to give it agency and allow it to work independently, then we need to be able to hold it accountable. And we also need to hold ourselves accountable. And this becomes incredibly important in the debate about leisure robots um, and what should be the correct behaviour of people towards them. Um, and that's much more about protecting us, actually, and making sure that we continue to behave well in a very unregulated world where you know people could do anything in their own homes. Um, so I think the second you start putting a brain into a machine, uh, you need to start thinking about what that means in terms of a rights regime, both to protect that thing and to protect us. Is your argument, Eve, essentially that we should seek to humanise AI, that that is the answer um, to ensure that AI um, can benefit um, the world in the best possible way, but also that limits the potential damage that could be inflicted on the world? I'm thinking there also of, uh, you you talked about the way AI currently exists in a, a very rational form. Perhaps what often it lacks at the moment is empathy. Um, we're, we're, we've been thinking recently about the, the whole scandal with the post office and and the way, if we like, the, 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 there was such confidence in the systems and the processes. Um, in the AI, you could argue, um, but there was, um, a, a, if you like, a lack of, of, of empathy and perhaps kind of social intelligence that was used to work out there's clearly something wrong here um so what's what yeah talk to that a little bit please well i think i've called it um robot souls programming in humanity as a bit of a pun because we're already programming in humanity but in a really rubbish way that is very partial and and particular and, and not very good so we need to do that better and and be programming in all humility in humanity in a more humanitarian way. Um, but the post office example is a good one because those kinds of bits of kit are very binary and they're very yes, no. Um, and the computer says no, you know, all those kinds of things. And there is a presumption in English law that the computer doesn't lie as well at the moment, which is problematic, as you know. But again, if you think about what that is about, our bit of junk code to do with uncertainty really helps with that. So Actually, the AI people have figured that out already. So if, if say, you are um, building an AI that will look at cancer scans and will tell you whether that scan is cancer or not, that's a binary yes-no decision, a bit like, you know, some of the thinking behind the horizon kind of systems. Um, But actually, um, what happens if you get a DOF image that's just a bit fuzzy or, you know, might have come in from a different set of of images? You know, if you misdiagnose that, that image, then someone will die. So actually you need, in order to de-risk your system, make it more reliable to think about, is there a third way? Is there some kind of uncertain category? 
So actually what they've done in AI is they have given kind of tasked out the different neural nets so that they kind of vote against each other, really, in terms of levels of certainty. And if they're not all certain on the image, then it gets escalated to a person who can look at it and say, well, that's a fuzzy image, let's try again. Um, and actually, what's interesting about the post office scandal is there was that computer doesn't lie idea because we hadn't thought that uncertainty might have a function. We thought uncertainty was about being faulty and being flaky and being rubbish and not committing to things. When actually, if you understand if you assume that our code is wise and you understand why we might be uncertain, that's actually about reducing risk in a way that would be really, really helpful. That when you suddenly have loads and loads of postmasters and mistresses saying, actually, this isn't adding up, instead of just saying computer says, no, you would be interested in that uncertainty and that confusion and you would try and figure out what that meant. Mm. It's the extraordinary thing, isn't it, that it was Mr. Bates versus the post office. It was a film that in the end prompted political action, decisive political action, um, which is both you know extraordinary and encouraging, but also outrageous um, that it that it requires that um, to prompt action. At the same time, perhaps it illustrates um, the uh, certainly at the moment the limitations of systems and processes and a particular approach um, to tackle problems, particularly when things go wrong. But it illustrates how incredibly important our junk code is because that is a really brilliant example of storytelling and meaning making writ large. Yeah. So we weren't getting that in the way that we were hearing about it through the newspapers, which is supposed to be factual and data being fed to us about um, you know miscarriages of justice. That that wasn't storytelling and meaning making in the way that that dramatization was. And all of a sudden, we got it because that's yeah. part of our hard wiring and it's how we work and it's how we process what we do with our species in life. Um, and so it immediately hit everyone's jugular um, because it was about storytelling and meaning making and then we all reacted. Um, so it's very salutary because that stuff is so hardwired into our design. Then, of course, um, you know, advertisers know this because they manipulate it all the time. Um, but that was a, a good manipulation for, for brilliant ends. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it, that essentially you're saying that the junk code that often we think is sort of, um, sort of well, unnecessary at best and gets in the way at worst, um, in fact, is fundamental to what it is to be human. In fact, you could say that our, our humanness is our junk code. Absolutely, the first shall be last. And I think what's lovely about junk code in the trade is junk code is sometimes stuff you think is probably a bit rubbish but you're a bit scared to delete it mm -hmm. in case that crashes the whole system but sometimes it's been deliberately put in there to stop you copying it by making things a bit confusing yeah. so <laughs> who yeah, right. knows but certainly it's the stuff that we've underestimated and culturally have not promoted um, when you think about public policy and education and spending it's all about stem it's all about those very very binary yes no subjects which actually ai can do way better than us already Whereas all the stuff that's been defunded, like the humanities and all those other things, they're all the kind of storytelling, purpose, meaning-making things, which actually AI finds it very hard to do um, and are probably more hardwired to our particularity as persons and more likely to be helpful to us going forward when we have AI to do all the other stuff for us. Yeah, it's really, really interesting and encouragement to you know bring the bring their humanities and the arts to the world of AI. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, talk to us, um, Eve, very practically about this. Obviously, it's a really interesting conversation. 
the danger is it, it it's an it could be an abstract conversation but of course it's it's not because the impact of ai is experienced in the everyday um how practically would you suggest that we engage with all of this stuff in our everyday life and work? Um, I mean, what is the significance of all of this? We've talked about chat GBT, but uh, it could be to do with what's on my playlist or what news I read or um, other decisions that I take. I mean, I, I, I guess I've been thinking recently about the extent to which you know, in lots of ways, our actions are predetermined by the information that is presented to us and the channels that were taken down. Um, so, you know, that potentially opens a can up of worms for our everyday lives. But what what are some of the very practical implications for our everyday lives and work, would you say? I think the very first thing is to go back to something Grace said, where she said that she's met quite a lot of Christians who just aren't engaging in this because they think it's mm. probably a bit dodgy of the devil. And I would just really encourage everyone to engage with this because Christianity has a huge amount to offer this debate. The distinctive and most important thing um, that I think this debate needs is the Christian voice. So, so please don't be bashful about that. But in order to be credible, you will need to tool up. And that means you do need to break through all this dreadful jargon uh, and try and figure out how you can tool up on this. And uh, the book's got about 10 pages of glossary because there's so much jargon to try and terrify us all the way um, that you do have to sort of get get on top of that. But if you can find books like mine or, or anything like that, which will just take you quietly and gently through some of this thicket of different acronyms and different sorts of bit of kit that do different sorts of things, that will at least help you orientate yourself in this space um, within your own sector industry or, or workplace it's worth finding out what courses are on offer what what could you do to understand both the strengths and the weaknesses of the AI tools that are becoming available in your professional sphere um, and be canny about it I mean it is as you say Paul it's incredibly salutary asking chat GPT something because I asked it to write a biography of me and because the training data in the very first ones was, I think, up to 2018 or something, it didn't know I'd got an OBE. So it came up with this fantastically flattering stuff about my <laughs> contribution to world peace at the UN, which I, I loved. Like but, <laughs> but it was completely blagging. So it does reassure you that it, it isn't it isn't going to take your job away immediately because it doesn't know <laughs> what you know. Um, is, but, but also we have a responsibility to be part of the community training these things up. Um, because if we leave it all to other people, then where is the Christian voice? Where are where are we in all of that? So I would encourage everybody to um, kind of gird their loins and try and wade in um, and get as much help as you can and just understanding what, what's happening. But also, I think, pay very careful attention to formation. We talked about learning loss and we talked about whether it's worth making things from scratch or just having you know the ready meal. Um, and it's worth thinking about your own moral formation and your own disciplines and your own practices and what would help you be more virtuous using AI and what would actually leave you to be skipping over things. And where you're involved in developing other people, whether you're responsible for children or for colleagues, thinking about how you really learn. So if there's stuff they're going to skip over and have learning loss over because AI will do those things much more quickly and cheaply then what else do they need to learn um, in order to be more wise? Um, because that's something that we're all humanly expert at and can be generous about sharing with other people. Um, that'll be the next big challenge, I think, is moral formation in an age of AI, and we can all help with that. 
Thank you. Well, you've given a good plug for this podcast. Um, obviously, people need to have uh, watched it or, or, or listened to it to get that plug. But the, the point is engagement and thinking is is step one, isn't it, sure. on that? Um, it's a good thing to do. Uh, finally, Eve, tell us, how do you think the future will pan out? What is your prediction from where you sit at the moment. We're hanging Having... on your every word. Yeah, right, exactly. We're waiting. We're waiting. <laughs> bye, bye. Sales are... <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think in the short term, there'll be some panicky regulation, which won't get it right. Um, partly because countries and geographies are, are competing to try and be attractive to innovation while also put a few um, stakes in the ground. I think there'll be very asymmetric development. There'll be some things that shoot ahead and some things that take longer, but there'll be a huge amount of consolidation. And because robotics is moving so fast, we're going to see a huge acceleration uh, in in robots um, and robotic assistance, as well as um, sort of computer-based assistance. I I think if we don't get this right around the sort of basic values, if you like, um, we are likely to be in a bit of trouble with some quite bad decisions being made in quite big places where things have been outsourced to AIs. Um, but I think if we can understand our own design as risk mitigation, it's in everyone's interest to to de-risk these new, very uh, powerful and rather alarming um, things that we are building. Uh, I think we will have to get into a regime of rights for all kinds of reasons, and I think that will actually help. Um, And I think ultimately we'll all have to figure out for ourselves some really difficult existential questions about are we special? Um, Because Christians are very clear on that. We are special because we're made in the image of God. But we're living in a world where the narrative is all about improvement through evolution. And actually, if an AI would be an improvement on us, then what right would we have to prevail? So I would also predict that there should be a huge uh, rallying call to the faiths Mm. who actually have really important skin in the game and something to say, because if you want to believe in humans, you really have to believe in God. And I think when that message finally lands, I'm hoping God will be there to meet us. Amazing. Eve, it's been great talking with you. I've certainly learned... Uh, a huge amount. It's been uh, challenging, a challenging conversation as well as a, a really informative and, and, and encouraging one as well. Um, plenty to think about. Um, what are you focusing on next? Um, are you continuing to probe into the, the world of AI or is there something else coming up? Yeah, I'm still I'm still trying to think about this learning loss thing, actually, because I, I do think one of my earlier books was about leadership and leader smithing and how do you form as a leader? Uh, and there's actually a lot to read across with this, which is if you are asking senior leaders, what do they wish they'd known 10 years ago? And how did they learn that? The answers will increasingly be different when we have a lot of AI working alongside us, particularly um, in these kind of crucial career spaces. So I'm now getting really interested in that idea professionally, which is how would you create wise partners if they haven't you know, gone through the whole bag carrying, making the tea, attending tedious meetings and pitches to learn by osmosis, how, how to do that and trying to really unpick what, what is wisdom in this day and age and how would we help people develop that better. So that's Amazing. my next project. Brilliant. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that. People can purchase Robot Souls online and from all good bookshops. I have to say, I really enjoyed it, Eve. I think it's brilliantly written. It's informative. It's actually quite funny and it's thought provoking. I couldn't recommend it more highly. I'd really encourage people to, to get a copy of it. Robot Souls 
online or at all good bookshops. Eve, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been fun. Thanks. And thanks, Grace. Thanks, Eve. It's lovely. Well, Grace, what did you think of that? Um, fascinating, Paul. I think um, I'm, I'm happy to be honest in saying that AI has somewhat scared me and um, has been something that I've kind of kept my distance from probably it made it made me laugh actually or I was thinking whilst we were chatting to Eve when she was talking about the whole idea of you know personal preference of you know do you make your ready meal or do you make something from scratch that when I got married I was a kind of I wouldn't go as far as saying technophobe but I like to do things the old school way and um my lovely husband Luke came along with um basically anything that a human doesn't need to do like turning on a light basically alexa i shouldn't say it too loudly in case she <laughs> but basically is a is a clear feature in our house and we had some very serious discussions about you know whether we were going to um welcome her into our marital home and <laughs> and basically he he won the argument so to speak so she she is a part but i still struggle with that thing of of speaking to something that i can't really understand um who they are what they are asking them to turn on the light for me when I quite like that you know made me think about the whole but like Eve really backed me up here the loss of learning you know I like turning on the light switch for myself and going through that process and um anyway that's just a little silly side You'll be note, deploying really, this argument against Luke I will um, I will I'll take. make sure he listens yeah. to this but um but I thought in all seriousness it was an interesting one of actually there will be some people who more naturally than others feel comfortable with this topic but I think what was really interesting especially at the end of what Eve was saying is actually how as Christians we have a really unique part to play in this topic and actually shying away and sort of choosing to um, bury our heads is not actually helpful and that there are part of there's part of how we see humans and and the way that we believe God has made us that actually is really relevant um and important to you know whether it's speak up about or um kind of bring to this area so I think I was I was challenged by that um again and and yeah again this whole idea of of junk code I remember when I read her book that I found that fascinating and actually really helpful to have somebody and again you know if people haven't read the book um that chapter especially or just the way that Eve unpacks those distinctive human parts of us that actually I'm not sure I would be able to kind of name and and describe in that way but you know obviously as a human I remember reading that and thinking oh yeah like that that is what they are those slightly awkward clunky parts of us that as she said you know could be seen as all night actually we need to get get rid of those or I need to hide those and present my best self whereas actually they are when it comes to AI they're the essential bits that actually we need to consider offering to whether it be robots or other forms of ai um yeah and i thought eve was brilliant i thought she was hopeful and optimistic on a topic that actually yeah. i think as she said can scare people off um and feel quite dark and challenging um what do you think yeah i think optimistic i think that's really interesting isn't it it was an optimistic conversation perhaps in a way that surprised me um although having read the book um less surprise because the vision that is offered of ai in the future is optimistic i think i was also reminded of the the fact that disengagement isn't an option it's like politics in a sense that we, you can't disengage i mean in a liberal democracy it, we have 
power um and and you know if we choose not to use it we're still affecting the outcome uh, of an election for example um similarly with ai you can't disengage because it's it's just all around us uh, yeah and um, so the the question is you know we might think we're disengaging and we we perhaps you know can to a greater or lesser extent but actually ultimately we can't disengage the question is how do we engage in a way that is is wise um and is 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 good um i think um i mean i was really interested in the you know the starting the discussion we could have probably got into a bit more in terms of how the the, the christian story mm. connects mm. um but i guess I, I was struck by the idea that you know the fact that our, our, our desire in a sense to create yeah. is good you know it is um that is a, a good desire that has been built into us um but equally we know the story and you know the reality is that um it goes wrong and therefore ai can be massively affected by our own tendencies to to selfishness and to seek power and control and and that is therefore something that needs to be navigated yeah and and navigated well um because the implications of not doing so are catastrophic yeah um so the stakes it seems the stakes are quite high, really high. Aren't they yeah. for this? it made me think of um obviously that there's a part in Genesis where, you know, God creates human beings and then he describes them as very good. And actually, I think from what Eve was saying, it's almost as if, you know, we as humans with the desire to procreate um, or create things have created robots, but actually have created them sort of mediocre. And I think Eve's challenge to us was, you know, knowing that God has put things within us as humans that are excellent and, and in God's words, very good. Um, how can we expect robots to be good if we're not willing to create them in a way that reflects that? And I, and I, I think that if I'm totally honest, there is still a part of me that's like, oh, I feel a bit nervous about that. Um, and I've had lots of conversations with, um, you know, with with people who I think would fundamentally disagree with that. Um, but I think it's as you, as as you said, I think it's kind of tooling up so that even if you disagree you have a I should say we have and um, because I very much include myself in this you know we have a an accurate picture of actually what what is you know the next year to five to ten years looking like um it made me think actually you know to do with kind of chat GPT in particular you know I was at university not that long ago now and actually the idea of using that to write an essay wasn't even spoken about like you know we're talking about within the last kind of five years I was doing my finals and that just wasn't that you know you wouldn't even think of it you wouldn't even think of copying pasting something off Wikipedia or if you did you'd kind of yeah that would be a real ethical decision whereas now there's you know there's this obviously this form of AI that basically could pass and get you a degree um and actually whether we like it or not you know, I'd imagine for students that is that is on your radar and that is something you have to engage with. As you say, it's not really a choice anymore. It's this is your this is your remit and this is your reality. So I think, um, yeah, her advice of sort of, you know, skilling up and also thinking for people in positions of, um, you know, whether it's line management or kind of managerial positions within the workplace, especially or I suppose in, in a different sector, you know, parents and things actually thinking, you know, I thought it was fascinating when she spoke about that whole loss of learning. And actually how sometimes it probably is a bit of a lazy choice just to choose for AI to do something that actually there might be a, a process that 
that having to go through some of that labor or that kind of hard work is also really good for us. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I think just made me think actually when there are situations where we maybe have some influence over others, sort of trying to still create those spaces for that creativity and that making a mistake, getting things wrong, um, but that all being part of the learning process. Um, but yeah, yeah, I thought it was a brilliant conversation. I did get a little bit squeamish around the conversation of the soul and just where that was going. I, I guess I, I think there, there can be a tendency um, amongst Christians to actually have a, a kind of understanding of the soul that isn't actually Christian, but yeah. is, is, is Greek. This sort of idea that the soul is an immaterial me that's separate to the body. I mean, that's a, a very platonic concept. You don't find that in the New Testament. Mm. Um I think the the way that Eve was was talking about that probably was more in terms of as it's often understood um, in 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 scripture, which is the, the sense of the soul um, being more like uh, perhaps what we would mean by a, a person or a personality or the, the real me, and and the sense that um, uh, sort of bringing some of those, and that's where the discussion went on to the junk code to AI could be a, a helpful and hopeful route through. Um, I'm just trying to work that through still in yeah. my mind, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and ultimately, I suppose the sense that ultimately AI can never replace human beings. Completely, if human yeah. beings are what they are, what we are um, created in the image of an invisible God and mm. Uh, created to relate to God and each other and to engage with God in this world. I mean, that's mm. that ultimately that is a human vocation um, yeah. that can't be can't be delegated um, yeah. out in a sense. We we retain the responsibility. Interesting, uh, really interesting. Thank you, Grace. That was uh, such an interesting conversation. Um, Always a joy, Paul. It is indeed. If uh, you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to follow us. We'd love you to leave a review. Tell your friends all about it. But until next time, from Grace and me, that was The Whole Life. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.